pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. 水煮肉片. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Hola, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David Martins, and I'm the executive chef at the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And my guest today is a chef, culinary consultant, and a pasta fanatic. His work at San Francisco's Quince and Lazy Bear led to both restaurants rising Michelin stars. He has appeared on Chopped. Also, he was a top three finalist of Bravo Top Chef Season 15 and was invited back to compete on Top Chef Season 17 All-Stars. His Instagram account is full of amazing pasta and bread videos, and he also teaches online classes. And according to my best friend, his pasta is as gorgeous as his mustache. Joe Sasto, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What a great introduction. How's it going? Thank you. Everything is good. How's the weather in, in LA? Uh, I recently, I'm in San Francisco right now. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe I'm weird, but I prefer the gloomy, colder, kind of overcast sort of days much more than the never-ending sunlight of Los Angeles. And I know people move to LA because they want the sun all the time, but I just, I couldn't do it. I was there for like three years and that was like one of the things I disliked the most was like how it was constantly sunny and hot. So I don't know, maybe I'm weird. Maybe, I don't know if that's okay. just me. Yeah, I've been in the U.S. for 10 years and I still have to go to California. Just when you start realizing how long does it take to get California, it's like half an hour less than go to Portugal. So I just go to Portugal. Two important, <laughs> it's true. Two important questions before we start this. Have you ever been to Portugal? I have not. It's on my list. Is it, Joe? It, is, it really is. Okay. I've heard great I was, things. I was just asking. <laughs> no, no, no. It really is. But you did a European tri trip, didn't you? That inspired you a little bit. I did. And that was like that, like post college, after my first kitchen job with my two younger brothers, we did like eight weeks backpacking all through Europe. And we did like the full circle, like Paris to London, to Amsterdam, Berlin, Prague, but just to be clear, uh, Italy, no, no Lisbon. France, no Lisbon. We did um, Barcelona was the closest we got, but that's not the same. We don't care about Barcelona. It's okay. Do you know any Portuguese words? I don't. I don't. It's okay. Well, do you know how to say pasta in Portuguese? Pasta is pasta universal, is it not? Yeah. I'll see. I was trying it's to like pizza. Pizza is... I was trying to be funny. You stole my thunder. It's yeah. Like, yeah it's pasta is pasta. Pizza is the same thing. <laughs> when was the last time you cooked or ate pasta? Yesterday. Okay. <laughs> not surprised. What was it? What did I do yesterday? I think I was uh, making some cavatelli. And I mean, these days between teaching classes, creating content and just like wanting to cook and develop recipes, I'm eating pasta almost every single day, pasta or pizza or bread. And like people are like, oh, my God, how do you do that? And it's like, I don't know. I don't get tired of it. <laughs> pasta people, people do believe pasta is just one kind of form, but pasta can really be a lot of layers, a lot of things. And it doesn't always have to be like people think pasta and they think it's like Italian. But it's like you could still have noodles, put like black vinegar and Szechuan and kind of like make it Chinese. And then you're like in a completely different part of the world. You're still eating like wheat and water, but it's totally transformed. If you can share the perfect pasta recipe. Well, it's a, that's such a complicated question. For an, for an egg noodle, 
Because like most of the time, that's what I found people are like talking about. They're like, oh, I want a pasta recipe. They want an egg dough. And for me, we, I mean, I'm not going to say we all know, but the most traditional version of an egg dough is one whole egg for each hundred grams of flour. And that usually serves one person. So if you have five people, you do five eggs, 500 grams of flour, and that's like a base recipe. But then you could start to tweak that for personal preferences. So I prefer more yolks to whole eggs because I like the texture. I like the way it comes out. So you could go three whole eggs, three whole yolks, and about 350 grams of flour is like a great kind of like middle of the road starting recipe for me. And of course, a pinch of salt. The non-egg version, right? And that will be, you can tell people how that as well. That's much simpler because that is like more ratio driven. So that I do like 50-50, double zero and durum wheat. So you got like a hard wheat and a soft wheat. So you got like a balance of proteins and then 48 to 50% hydration by weight. And then I don't put salt in that dough because I want more gluten formation. What you should never do when making handmade pasta? Oh, this is a good question. What you should never do. And I know people, someone started this rumor a long time ago and I want to like help start a campaign to end it. Let's start. That, that pasta water should be as salty as the sea because that couldn't be further from the truth. And anyone who's ever said that has never been to the ocean, has never played at the beach and gotten hit in the face with the wave. Because if they have, they would know how salty ocean water is. It's incredibly salty. And I mean, you could even get scientific. Ocean water is like three to 4% salinity, which is like crazy. That's high. That's very, very salty. Pasta water, you're cooking in it. You're going to use it as the starchy water to thicken your sauce, to bring everything together. And I mean, at the most, you want a 0.5%, 1% salinity. And so everyone needs to stop seasoning their pasta water salty as the sea. They need to stop spreading that rumor. And instead, they should be seasoning it to taste like water soup. A very good soup, a good stock. You should be able to eat it by the spoonful. You can't eat ocean water by the spoonful. It's disgusting. And so that to me is the number one rule when you're talking about pasta. And the biggest myth that a lot of people also do, which is put olive oil in the water. What do you have to say about that? That's a big one too. And I think that one is just comes to, there's that. And I don't see why you would ever want to do that because we all know it's common knowledge that oil and water don't really mix. So the oil just floats at the top, the pasta cooks in the water, and then you run into that same issue. You can't use that water to then create your sauce because there's oil floating in it and it's not just straight starch water. So yes, we need to stop doing that. It doesn't do anything. And if you have been doing that and it works out great your whole life, just try it without it and see what happens. I agree. So growing up, who was your influence in the kitchen? Your mom was a good cook, right? My mom was a great cook. She was definitely my biggest influence in the kitchen growing up outside of like old school food network. <laughs> and I mean, old, old school by the fact that when it was actually like cooking shows and like teaching, because it's now it's like only competition. It's like the next great baking show, the like Halloween wars, Christmas gingerbread houses. And it's, you know, whatever is that season, that's what's on food network. And I mean, it's popular. It's, you know, advertising dollars and that's Mm -hmm. what people want to see that's Mm -hmm. fine but when i was growing up i wasn't watching cartoons i wasn't outside playing sports i was either in the kitchen hanging out with my mom or i was sat down in front of the tv just watching food network old school cooking shows like two fat ladies uh eats meets west with ming sai that sandra lee show that galloping gourmet 
that crazy guy that would like get wasted and like try to cook yeah. <laughs> like shows that like would have no business being on television these days now those are like the shows that i used to watch but i think the, the most influential of all of them was definitely good eats with alton brown because yeah. i learned so much from him there's still things i learned from him that i reference today that are incredibly impactful in the kitchen yeah, I always tell people to, to the two fat ladies and Ready Steady Cook was also other British show that I used to yes. enjoy it a lot. It, was there anything that your mom used to make that you haven't quite mastered yet? There was one thing. It was her. It was her gravy. And now, so I say the word gravy loosely. I'm come from an Italian American family. We grew up on the East Coast in New York, and so if you're from that area and that and you know what I'm talking about, you know, gravy is referring to like a red sauce with meat in it not the brown gravy you'd put on mashed potatoes or meatloaf. We use the word gravy as like, you know, that marinara red sauce, pasta sauce kind of thing. And her gravy was like, I, I want to say world renowned, but at least renowned throughout the families and the boroughs and the neighbors and the friends. And that was incredibly difficult to replicate after she passed away. None of us could, I couldn't do it. My sisters couldn't do it. And I recently, over the past few years, figured out the secret that she was doing that none of us were doing that really made all of the difference. Okay. You don't have to share the secret. Sorry. You know, talking about gravy, I've said this here before, but my first Christmas here that I cooked for my American family, I was trying to impress. I did a lot of dishes. You know, when you're really in the kitchen for, it's almost like you work at mm -hmm. a restaurant, like 20 dishes. It was like roasted goose and it was the this. The whole prep list. Yeah, the whole Everything. Thing. And I remember I made mashed potatoes and I guess I was very naive at the time. This was seven, eight years ago. Five minutes before we started eating, I was like, okay, I was like a buffet style. I was like, everybody can get ready. And I remember my sister-in-law, she came behind me and she was like, oh, wait, is that mashed potato? I said, yeah. She said, where's the gravy? So I made a sauce because I come from a country that we call things this way. I, come from, I made a sauce that I thought she mentioned the gravy was the sauce for the goose. And that's when I learned that a lot of Americans like to eat gravy on top of mashed potato. That white gravy, the bechamel sauce, I guess. And it was there was a lot of cursing. It's okay. So that was my, my yeah, experience. There, it's funny how like words and food and cuisine has that kind of translate uh, loss in translation through different parts of the world. And it's true. I, gravy is one of those. Like when I came to the West Coast, and when you say the word gravy, like friends would look at me and be like, "You put gravy on spaghetti." And it's like, yeah, that's the only way to eat spaghetti. But they were thinking what you would put on mashed potatoes or meatloaf, not the same red gravy that I grew up with. I've heard you say that you found it difficult to get a foot in the door in the culinary industry after uh, foregoing the traditional path of culinary school. Why was that? I think, you know, it was a different time. We're talking a little over 10 years ago. And back then there wasn't social media. There wasn't really any way to make a name for yourself if you didn't have a cookbook or didn't have a reputable re resume to show where you've worked. People wanted to know where you work. They wanted to see what you've done, where these days is there kind of other routes to go. Um, but back then there was, you know, you had to show where you've worked in order to people to take you seriously. And so I would try to show up at these restaurants like the door, drop off my resume, no one would call me back. No one would give me a chance in the kitchen. I didn't really have any experience outside of like the place I was working in college. And so I ended up having to take a job two or three hours north in this tiny little city called Ukiah. It's north of San Francisco. A friend of a friend 
helped me get that job even because I don't even know if I would have gotten that job. But through that whole process, um, I learned what staging was. I learned what how you work your way up in a kitchen. I learned about kind of like the hierarchy and the way things work in that industry because before that, there's you know you you don't you can't read about it. There's no real way to know without just diving in and giving it a try. Uh, why are you so passionate about pasta and Italian food in general? I think it's something that I fell into accidentally. Because I, I know growing up, it was we would eat pasta three, maybe four times a week. And I hated it. I would be like the annoying son, the brat child that would be like, I don't want pasta again, mom. And like, I want tacos or anything else. I didn't want pasta. I was tired of it. I was over it. I hated it. And so I was like, never seeking out to cook Italian food. I thought I was going to cook French food. Um, I was really into that French fine dining kind of scene. Um, I love the idea of like using tweezers and like really kind of like pushing the boundaries of that upper end of cuisine. And it was through that process I landed at Quince in San Francisco, which lo and behold is kind of a combination of the two. Uh, really strong French fundamentals with Italian influences. And that's like Michael Tusk's, Chef Tusk's background. It's what the restaurant's known for. And cooks come from all over the world to come learn pasta there because it's almost this pasta capital of Northern California, if you will. And I didn't. I just wanted a job there to learn fine dining. I wanted to refine my skills and my technique. And it was through working there, starting at the bottom. I was finishing up a prep shift. I think I had already been there maybe 12 hours. You know, we get there at 6 a.m., did the whole morning shift. I was getting ready to leave. It was probably like 6 p.m. right before service was starting. And I don't remember what happened, but one of the cooks did something that was egregious. And the chef was furious at him and essentially pretty much picked him up, put him out the back door, took off his apron, turned around. I was standing right there, handed me his apron and said, you're cooking tonight. And that just kind of like catapulted me onto the hotline, lo and behold, into the world of pasta. And that's just where I landed. And so that could have been a fish cook. Maybe that could have been a meat cook. And it would be an entirely different tra trajectory for me. I don't know. Yeah. But because that ended up happening that way and I landed on the pasta station, I then kind of became infatuated by it. You know, it was one of those things that stressed me out the way it works in those types of kitchens. And, you know, there's a pasta prep team, a handful of guys uh, that prep all the pasta you need every morning. You fill out a request list. You know, I need X amount of raviolis. I need this many tortellinis for the next day. And they don't always get it done. They're only there for six hours or eight hours, whatever their shift is. And so you as a PM line cook, you're responsible for still having that pasta, even if the guys didn't finish it. And so I would come in early. I would inevitably have to like pick up where they left off, make sure I had all of my mise en place, all of my portions for the night. And so I would then have to learn how to make pasta in order to keep up and make sure my station was set up for success. And so that just kind of pushed me deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole of pasta. I became more and more interested in it. Chef, Chef Tuss kind of took an interest in me and in teaching me how to roll out a sfoglia with the mozzarella and really kind of like do everything by hand and taught me all these really old school Italian techniques and ways of doing things 
the much, much harder way. And I just fell in love with it. And, you know, as a side note, I have to admit, I think what my struggles, I guess, with pasta is it, it can be very, very finicky. It's a very finicky job. It's almost like decorating a cake. It's not, it's not just like, oh, you know, he's just stretched the dough and that's it. As much as it sounds weird to say, I'm not the biggest fan or I don't have a lot of patience for a lot of finicky things. Although I like to make what I make at the embassy, it's different. It will be, I don't know what people will consider, I guess, fine dining-ish, but the finicky aspect, does that make sense? Like the finicky part of baking, the finicky part, pasta has that part that a lot of people think is just like, just make noodles, right? That's it. But no, it's a very finicky job. And your videos are just those 15 second videos or something right on Instagram. You just like, you just like stare at it because they're, they're amazing. You said you mentioned you come from a Italian background family. What do Italians and Americans have in common when it comes to their approach to food? If there's anything. Italians and Americans. I think because, you know, I'm more tied to my Italian American roots than my actual Italian roots. I'm sure I still have family out there in Italy and I really hope to connect with them one day, but I have no idea. Both of my parents were first generation Americans. Their parents came over, my mom's parents from France and my dad's parents from Italy. So my mom's not even Italian, just my dad's side of my family. And both of their parents, I didn't have a close relationship with my dad, his whole Italian side, they passed away before while I was still a, a young child. So I never connected with that. my grandparents. I never really learned anything about my heritage or like exactly I know like what part of Italy we come from, but that's the extent of it. Sure. So I think the Italian American aspect of it where we're immigrants. America is a country of immigrants. We come together and food is kind of like become that center point that brings us all together, that creates happiness, that creates memories, that really just kind of evokes emotion. And the Italian Americans who are also immigrants fall into that same group. And food was that thing that connected them to their homeland, that invoked those memories, that created nostalgia, that really just made them happy. And so that's one of the things that drives me to food and cooking so closely is that food's ability to create these powerful memories and draw on the past and just kind of shift the direction of the future. Why do you think a lot of people are drawn to food channels and cooking shows nowadays when, like you said, it's not exactly about cooking? I think this past year, 2020 and everyone being at home changed that dynamic slightly where people are actually interested in learning about cooking now and led to the rise of a lot of food creators and food content and just interesting avenues of learning about food on the internet, on your phone, on whatever it was. And so that's been really great to see people actually interested in learning about cooking and not just the competition aspect of it. But I, I mean, I think food's one of those universal constants. It's something we all need. And so once you're able to kind of unlock that part of your brain where you can appreciate food that gives you memories. I don't even want to say good foods. It doesn't have to be good food that gives you memories. It's like any food can essentially have that power that connects you with your past or with someone else or another time. And so as people slowly start to realize that and they kind of are like, oh, you know, the light bulb goes off, then it's something they want to continue pursuing. Yeah. You know, they, they're after that same feeling. And so they're exploring and they're curious and i think it's like human human nature is to be curious and so like food is a great thing to be curious about shifting the conversation a little bit imagine an island joe there's an island that you like uh yeah i would i would love to go to like new zealand 
New Zealand. Imagine you have the whole island to yourself. You can okay. take one protein, one veg, one fruit, and one dessert. What do you take? One protein, one veg, one fruit, and one dessert. Oh, that's tough. Hmm. You, now you're dropping the hard questions. <laughs> Those are the hard ones. <laughs> now we're on the hard yes. questions. Protein would probably have to be some sort of beef. I really like meat, like a good, nice cut of beef. If I had to choose and narrow it down, probably ribeye. I really like ribeye, like just something I just crave. Fruit. Don't forget the vegetable. Okay, don't be don't be a five year old that's skipping the veggies. What? Well, okay, veggies, veggies, uh, fruit. Well, let's go back. Fruit, okay. banana. I love bananas. Okay. Okay. Now, f- vegetable. Hmm. I mean, I guess I would be cooking it corn. I really like corn. You you could get sweet or savory out of corn. That's true. And so you kind of are like opening up, you know, what you can do with it. And your dessert. Um, my dessert. Oh, uh, rainbow sprinkles. Just like the sprinkles or that's actually a dessert? Well, I mean, can I like, because if I have rainbow sprinkles, I can make cake. I can make cookies. I can make ice cream. Okay. Hey, I just, well, I, I love desserts and use and as a vehicle for rainbow sprinkles. It's this weird thing I have. I love rainbow sprinkles. It's okay. So people are like, dude, you're eating wax. And I'm like, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's nostalgic. I love it. Like cake cookies, sugar cookies, rainbow sprinkles, rainbow sprinkle cake, soft serve ice cream, rainbow sprinkles. Like I'm a child at heart. That's a great backpack right there. It is. What was your first memory of taste? First memory of taste. Hmm. That's tough because my mom made, made food such an impactful part of our childhood. You know, we didn't grow up with everything. My parents were... I don't want to say they were struggling by any means, but they, you know, they were working both working jobs and doing what they could to like give me and my brothers a good life. And so food became that like form of entertainment for us and making dinner, making, bringing the family together was a huge part of that. I think, you know, one of the most impactful memories was like Saturday mornings when we'd have friends spend the night. And my mom would do this huge crepe buffet. And it was like standard routine. People would always want to spend the night at our house because they knew Saturday morning we'd wake up. My mom would have all like stacks of fluffy white crepes, all the different toppings, fruit, chocolate, sugar, lemon, whipped cream, like you name it. And it was just like this spread she would do up every single time. And I think that just kind of like was a huge important memory that you know showed how one just to like cook for others the power that food could have to like make people happy yeah and like she didn't do it you know for herself she was doing it for us but you could tell it made her happy and it kind of is that same emotion like you know as a chef like when you cook for others you do it because it makes you happy like you get to watch others eat your food and it just makes you happy you don't even need it yourself you're just making it for them to eat And I think a lot of people don't realize that, that chefs cook often in order to make other people happy, that then makes them happy, which is like this weird kind of like dynamic. But I I don't know. It's interesting how, what other, there are other professions and other things I'm sure that do that, but it's definitely a unique approach to what you're doing. I think the most underrated ingredient, underrated ingredient. I feel like I've said this before beets. Beets are underrated. Like, because like you know what? Pe- okay. 
And I was about to say, people who are anti-beat, I feel like just haven't had a no, really don't, well don't you start that conversation. It's the same. It, don't you start a conversation. You never had a good beat. No, I had a good, I had a good beat. I had a medium beat. I had a bad beat. And I still don't <laughs> like beats. I don't know, man. They're underrated. Beats it are was, great. It was the same thing when sushi was starting being a thing. I remember when people say, like, I don't like sushi. And the first thing people will say, like, you haven't tried good sushi. Which can be true, but you know, but okay, but I get it. Beets, yes, they have a beautiful color. But besides that, I yeah, me and beets, overrated ingredients. Overrated, maybe like wagyu is overrated because to me, I rather have dry aged than wagyu, and a lot of people don't feel the same way, and they just think wagyu high price tag. Oh, it's great. To me, it's a little overrated. The best breakfast you can have. I'm not a breakfast person at all. I don't really like eating eggs. I don't like putting eggs on things. I'll eat eggs if it's baked into something, but I'm not a traditional breakfast person by any means. I'm a big fan of like panettone French toast, which is like kind of breakfast, but you could have that as a dessert too. But my standard breakfast is like a smoothie bowl, granola, fruit, all like different seeds and nuts. And that's like my favorite way. I like almost every day. I had it today, okay. every day, smoothie bowl. What is the strangest combination food-wise when people put two or three ingredients together that you just cannot accept? Hmm. I don't know if I've had a real combination that I don't accept. Or if you see other people doing that you like, don't do this. I'm do I don't like doing some of the like easy layup kind of like gimme like combinations where you know it's like been done a hundred times. And so it's like, oh, you know, why are you putting tomato, burrata, and basil again, like with balsamic, you know, like it's good. It's great. We all know it, but I would try to think of another way to rethink that. So it's not the same. I don't know. That's a tough one. I know like a flavor combination I don't like is sea buckthorn. I'm not a fan of sea buckthorn which is like a very obscure ingredient <laughs> to throw out there. Uh -huh. I don't know how many people listening to this podcast are going to be like, oh yeah, yeah me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I just know I've had it multiple times in different ways. I've had it in soda. I've had it fermented. I've had it in a sauce. I've had a dessert. I've had it savory. And it's just like, it, it has this weird, almost like, I don't know. I hate to say bile taste, but it kind of like, I'm just not into it. Uh, when it comes to, especially the strangest combination, Are you very against of cheese with seafood pasta? I love cheese and seafood. Anybody that thinks cheese go. and seafood should not go together needs to rethink themselves because that's another one of those like rumors that someone started somewhere that there's absolutely nothing wrong with and it's absolutely delicious. I've said this before here, but the strangest combination that actually someone did and he really liked it, it was popcorn in tomato soup. Oh, I mean, in theory, it makes sense. It's corn, it's crunchy, Joe, don't corn and tomatoes. What happens corn if you put tomatoes makes sense? Okay. <laughs> What happens if you put popcorn in the tomatoes? Do you think it's still well, be crunchy? Well, it's going to get soggy in two seconds. That's the problem. Well, that's not just the problem, but that's one of the problems. But just an idea. Popcorn and tomatoes. The texture of soggy popcorn sounds terrible. Yeah. So the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. Those are actually two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? I think I have a lot of experience and I have exceeded the expectations I've had for myself. I'm very happy. I hold myself to a high standard 
And I always try to push myself to do better and be better. And I'm constantly thinking I'm not doing enough or not doing well enough. And I think that's more of like an internal struggle I always have. But I feel like you need to stop. Everyone needs to stop and take a moment and appreciate where they are in life and how far they've come and not compare what they are doing to what someone else is doing and not use that as a measure of success, but rather where they want to see themselves and how close they are to being there or how far they've come to where they were in the past and use that as a better measure of success because we're all on our own journeys and on our own paths. And so as long as you're have the right reference point, we could all be turning chickens and breaking dishes. At the end of the podcast, I tell my guests to sell their fish in Portugal. If someone tells you to sell your fish is to talk about yourself In this case, you know, where people can find you, what's in the future for you, just sell your fish, Joe. Selling my fish. I like it. And I, I, that phrase, I understand the other two, I wasn't sure about. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you, you can find me on Instagram at chef.joe.sasto. All of the fun pasta, cooking and cat content that you're looking for through that. You could also find me on my website, joesasto.com. I teach monthly public live stream cooking classes and experiences, but I also do private ones for groups, corporate teams, events, birthdays, anniversaries, you know, in this virtual world where we're all having to be separate right now. It's a really great way to bring people together. And it's the closest thing I get to cooking for others, which I absolutely miss is being able to cook with others. Joe, thank you very much. What's, thank for, you. Di what's for dinner today? Although it's lunchtime there, but what's for dinner today? I have leftover pizza dough I plan on cooking up. Bread again. <laughs> Bread again. So this was a pleasure. If I ever go to San Francisco, I'll let you know. And don't forget, every time you go to New Zealand, just take that ribeye with you. Thank you. Okay. Looking forward to uh, meeting you in real life, hopefully one day. Me too. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joe, again for coming on the podcast. Don't forget, if you want to give yourself a birthday present or to a loved one or to a friend, why not sign up for a class with Joe? He makes amazing, amazing pasta work. So, you know, just give it a try. Don't forget, if you want to follow the podcast on Instagram, you can do so at Turning Chickens Breaking Dishes. You can follow the Facebook page, Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash dmartins. That's D-M-A-R-T-I-N-S like that you'll be supporting this podcast also if you want to send an email you can do so to info at turning chickens and breaking dishes.com i'll be back next week stay safe be happy adios